Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Korva. I'm Kikita Kaori, and today we have an overview of the Ridge of the Wilds, which has been extremely delayed because my copy was extremely delayed and I didn't want to write one off of a borrowed PDF. So uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's been a while since we've gotten together. So thank you for all the people who are still listening to us after our long Christmas break. And you know, fair, you know, to be fair, Christmas is a, it's a whole thing. Christmas and New Year and all that. So. Yes, Hanukkah, all of the wonderful festivals this time of year, but they are slightly distracting from they podcasts. They can be, yeah. Okay, so yes, let's, let's rush into the news we've got, because we do have some. Uh, there's an interview with Mary Brennan up on the Edge website. Uh, she's the author of the upcoming uh, Game of 100 Candles. So there's an interview with her up on the Edge website, and we'll have a link to that in our show notes. So you can go check that out. As you said, she uh, is coming out with a new book in February called Game of 100 Candles. She's the one who also did Night Parade of 100 Demons and also a large number of the fictions from the FFG RPG and poignant for our topic today, she also wrote The Eternal Knot. So you can read that. Another of our favorite uh, Aconite authors is Josh Reynolds. A new Daidoji Shin novel called The Three Oaths is coming out from Aconite in July. Uh, I believe it is about D- Daidoji Shin planning a wedding with the lion. And, oh no! You know, <laughs> pulling out his interior decorating chops, uh, which sounds probably boring to everyone not playing Crane, but they usually make it pretty exciting. <laughs> Honestly, if if you uh, have read any of the previous Daidoji Shin novels, you kind of go, "Oh, this is going to be a disaster," <laughs> in the most glorious way. Yes. And our final piece of news is that there's a new open role-playing Discord server, Tales of Rockagan. Uh, yes, yeah, so they're, they're going to be a server entirely dedicated to Legend of the Five Rings-themed role-play. It's going to be providing in-depth storytelling, world-building, and is looking to create a successful story for whatever you choose to tell in the world of Rockagan. So they're looking to you know, have continued plots that have lasting effects on their world or their version of Rockagan, and a creative environment for knowledgeable fans and new fans alike. So there is going to be a bit of a process. So that, you know they've got writing samples and stuff, but um, they're going to they plan to be extremely welcoming and to get people up to speed on their writing skills. So we are going to have a link to all of that in our show notes. So if you want to go check those out, you will be able to. So um, as I said, our main theme today is going to be uh, talking about *Rich of the Wilds*, which is the most recent. A splat book for Legend of the Five Rings, uh, fifth edition. This is not Adventures in Rokugan from Edge Studios. It is not my Marie Brennan. However, if you read it, a lot of the lore created in this work is based on the Eternal Knot, 
which was by Maria Brennan, so it's worth calling her out. Uh, this one is by Alexis Daikima, who we have interviewed before, who has helped with other books. And she's been helped by Max Brooke, Robert Denton, Josiah Duke Harris, J.D. Latterout, Riley Miller, and Monty Lynn. And so they're the ones to credit for this. So we're going to yeah. talk about that work. Uh, it has an introductory story, which has a Kitsuki and a Nagasha helping out miners in a mine. Uh, very nice adventure to start off with. So I liked their chemistry. All right. So that was fun. But they're, they're kind of conflicting and contrasting styles. Yes. I thought it was very nice. Um, so section one starts off with the wilds, uh, you know, the secret empire, meaning the empire that a lot of people don't see because it's, you know, covered in forests and up a mountain and all that. So in this book, kind of the wilds tends to be the forests and the mountains. And so that's kind of the focus, which is also kind of what you find in Dragonland. So this isn't technically speaking the dragon book on its own, but this is the environments that you tend to find in those areas. Uh, we have a series of podcasts on environments. So you may want to go check those out for information about all sorts of places, including forests and mountains and mountains with forests <laughs> uh, but also other places as well yes. so there's a lot of lore about that which is really cool there's stuff about traveling in the wilderness but there aren't any specific mechanics for that uh, which has has led to a few people kind of complaining yes so um that that is that is something i've noticed in general with kinds of complaints or issues that players and GMs uh, have with role-playing games, we really, um, and, and just in the way that lore has been presented in all of these, all of these books, um, we, we find ourselves as players uh, or fans of L5R, you know, really, really craving uh, specificity. We want, we want to say, okay, what kind of trees are here? Or we want mechanics for how to climb a mountain or, you know, we want really specific things, but it's not necessarily in the interest of the writers of the books to get that specific because they, uh, one, it would mean the books were a million pages long. And also, um, because, uh, you know, there are different conflicts and they don't want to necessarily contradict something that has been said before. So if they keep things very broad in general, then they're not going to contradict anything else either. So you kind of, it's always a balance when you're developing a, a, a world. Uh, how, how specific do you get and how specific do you let the GM get? Um, it would have been nice to have some survival mechanics here. You know, I, I guess there's so many different kinds of survival circumstances they uh, didn't uh, raise. The other thing is uh, it, there's there's not a whole lot new here. So it's not new information. This is all stuff about the world that we knew or, or guessed if you've been an L5R reader for any length of time. It feels, it feels like you know all this, so it's not giving you anything new. That said, it does actually have some new stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of it is I think there there the two things. One is they have to assume that this might be the first splat book a particular player has ever gotten the hands on. 
Mm-hmm. So it's possible that there are people who've got the core book and this book and nothing else. And that has been a consistent design philosophy for the whole line. And that does lead to some situations where stuff seems to be repeated or there's, you know, why are we getting this stuff when we've got it in a previous book? It's because they can't assume everyone's read a previous book. Mm-hmm. Which And that, that's got its its benefits and it's 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 pros and it's cons basically and the other thing is you have to worry about how much extra crunch new survival mechanics might add and that is that is an issue because a lot of people think the game is already pretty crunchy and do you do you want to add more and how much does that add versus how much does it slow things down and that's you know that's a, they're obviously, they've come down on, on the side of let's keep things open and not add new mechanics, but that's not going to be everybody's taste. Absolutely. So yeah. just things to think about when you're looking at these books. Uh, that said, they do actually, you know, I enjoyed this book a lot and it felt, felt like it did add new things for me to think about or add. One of those new things, I think the first one we run into is the concept of Hitsu. Uh, which is this compulsion that the wilderness seems to ap- apply, afflict upon mortals. So each realm, like Ningendo or Jikoku or um, Sakaku or, or any of those realms, have their own influence that they uh, inflict on people who are closely associated with it. Like an area around an outlet to Jikoku is going to bring out, highlight, create dark evil impulses and compulsions and that sort of thing. Yeah. Now, much of the wilderness is associated with other realms too, or has has portals to other realms or you know, places where the boundary between the realms is thin. And during those in those areas that can afflict people in those areas with the strange compulsions of the realm that is kind of bordering it. And they call that hitsu. So uh, you might, you know, do bizarre things or, you know, have an animalistic tendency or something like that that comes out. So I thought that that was an interesting concept. There's only a sidebar. All the cool stuff is in sidebars. So, you know. <laughs> As is always. There was also some stuff on elemental imbalances, um, it's it's more about individual elemental imbalances, not the elemental imbalance that was a an ongoing plot thread in the wider story, which is the thing that the Phoenix were worried about. Right. It does give a bunch of theories as to why the elements are becoming more imbalanced in the Empire, which is the broader thing. But there, it doesn't say it is definitively this one or this one or anything like that. Yes. So that's that's, but it does have some stuff on what kind of things you'll find and and how this might affect you. I think there's 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 some stuff in there. There's certainly some stuff in there that felt that could make plots absolutely, and and and, and, and you know you could spin stuff off from that. And so I, I really like that section quite a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a section talking about how the various clans relate to the supernatural. Uh, I was not keen on this section overall because they all seem to have the same net effect, which is just every clan generally treats the supernatural with wary respect, except for the crab maybe, and they just smash it because 
they are crabbers. They smash it warily and, and respectfully. respectfully. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not true. I mean, yeah, there, there is a tendency, like, understandably, from where they're from, anything that's weird is a 90% chance of being a Shadowlands horror. So I do kind of, I kind of get their approach, even though it's not necessarily optimal in the Shinnamen, for example. The net effect of all of the descriptions is that all the clans basically treat with the uh, supernatural the same, which I, I wasn't keen on. I thought that they could have more um, specific interactions. Like, for example, there's a long relationship in the storyline between the crane and the Tengu from from the beginning of the Empire and the Tengu supposedly trained Kakita and they keep coming back and to between those two. And there's a pretty long relationship actually between the Scorpion and the Katsune. They don't talk about any of that in, in there at all. It's just Yeah. And they certainly didn't talk about the relationship between the lion and the Zokujin. Which was right, not a or good anything one. like that. <laughs> it was not so, a good one. It wasn't a good one. But even if they don't have any Zokujin in there, so, you know. But uh, even the the lion and yokai, considering their relationship with the ancestors, would have been uh, good to say, and they didn't say anything of it. It's just like, everybody treats the supernatural with wary respect. And that just, it's like, okay, that that's not very flavorful. But that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it might have been interesting to if, like, the, the Scorpion really don't like the supernatural and they try to deal with it as little as possible precisely because they, they are all about humans and largely how terrible humans are. And that's why they have to be that, – that's how they have to be how they are, right? That's why the Scorpion are what they're like. You know, they, they think people have to be forced to do the right thing. And so – yeah, you know, your yokai are this weird random element they just hate dealing with. And you could you could have that as an interesting concept. Right. Or well, traditionally, you know, by traditionally I mean like pre 5e mostly lore. Um the scorpion are actually particularly superstitious. Um because they are legalist, they believe everything follow should follow strict rules. <laughs> and if they don't, they should be forced to follow strict rules, but that you know, <laughs> It's 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 the legalist way of thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so they are more likely to do things that the other clans would consider superstitious, like never go out of the house with three people together, or you know, because if the universe is following the rules, then you'll be safe. But the universe is out to get you, so you need to follow the rules, or bad things will happen. That's a very legalist way of looking at it, whereas. Um, in my thinking of the, another thing that would be interesting is like the crane, cause crane fan, um, is that the crane are very not superstitious or the opposite of it. As in, we don't really believe this whole Shadowlands thing exists is a, is a, or this whole, uh, we don't believe that this was caused by yokai. This is something that the crane can frequently believe because they're so civilized in such civilized lands and they're so far away from the wilderness that they create a world around themselves that doesn't have a lot of this spiritual influence in their in most people's common lives and therefore they can be very not superstitious. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you could then then the dragon as yet another idea 
could be very accepting. Yes, very accepting, but definitely believing in it. They, they're not yes. agnostics or, you know, they, they know it's there. It's just, but it's just more a part of their lives. And they tend to think of it in a more scientific, classifying, breaking down way. <laughs> or, like, or, or possibly possibly more of a, you know, in the same way that there's a mountain there and there's a tree there, there's a fox spirit there. And that's it, that's just part of the way the universe is, and that's all fine. Whereas, the, yeah, the Gasha would definitely be, you know, we, we're going to have to write, we, we worked our Yorkai Spotters book, and we're going to write down everyone we find, and we're going to categorize them. But like others might just, but yeah, they're just they're just part of the the, the world. Why why would you treat them anything differently? And that could be an interesting way of having them all be slightly different in their approach to. The supernatural. But anyway. Anyway, there's some good adventure seats there for the elemental imbalance. I liked those. Uh, and I thought that they were good launching points for full full adventures, new adventures for... Uh, there's a later section talking about uh, elemental imbalance as adventure uh, engine. So we'll talk about that later. There's some discussion on the various different forests that there are. Shinomen Mori is obviously the big one, literally and figuratively. It is it, when people think of a supernatural forest or even a big forest, they we all think of the Shinomen Mori. So there's some detail there. Uh, we get to learn about the Tattered Ear Nezumi, uh, who are very similar to the Shadowlands Nezumi, but they've got their own separate kind of culture going on in the Shinomen Mori. And then there's quite a lot of stuff on the Naga, the Shinomen Naga, I should say, these days, because the Ivory Kingdoms have their own Naga. Yes. I really liked this lore section on the Naga. This was all very new, much more in-depth than maybe anything we've gotten regarding Naga before, even in the original one Naga splat books. So uh, even, you know, a lot more about their culture. It's It's slightly different. But I, I thought it was very, very in-depth uh, for anyone who wanted to play a Naga or just interact with the Naga. I, it's not long. It's just detailed. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I think, yeah, I, I like that section a lot. Yeah, it, I thought it was really good. Uh, the Shinoman Mori section in general from the geography part of it and the underground rivers and, and all of that, they took their time. They looked at their own maps. Uh, they looked at DG Ladderoot's uh, crane, uh, crab, crab novella, and they... They pulled it in there. I, I suspect Ladderoot wrote this section because the Tatar Dinizumi is straight from the same book. So, uh, so I thought I thought it was really really a good section. So kudos on it. Um, the next section, the next forest they talk about was the Isawa Mori, and unlike the Shinoman, this this doesn't have very very much there, and I. I it was a little uh, off for me. Um, you know, they ha- they talk about the foresters uh, tending the trees, but this is this is a section which which are new. The the Asawa foresters are are new, but they didn't say how they tended the trees very well in my reading of it. And I just uh, I, I don't know. 
know, I, I wanted more here. I wanted sto- um, stories about, you know, the kind of stories that come out of this place or or something. So I just didn't feel like, oh, I can sit down and, and write a game or make an adventure in this Sawamori and have anything to... Yeah, I mean... The Asawamori is more managed than the Shinamen, but it is magical in its own way and in a distinct way, which would have been nice to to really get across in this section. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, then we start looking at the northern border, which is mountains and forests. Um, there are a few specific locations mentioned. Yeah, I liked those locations. They were really good. Satyakotawa, Yobanjin Mura, and Wrath of the Kami, which is the big Mount Doom <laughs> slash uh, Fujisan-ish. It's the closest we've got to a Mount Fuji. Because in the Dragonlands, apparently, largely you can always see the Wrath of the Kami mountain somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I can only assume that in the Dragonlands, there is a, a uh, 100 views of the Wrath of the Kami Mountain, um, <laughs> Ukiyo-e set. Yobanjin Mura is where there's an interaction between the Yobanjin and the, everyone else. All on the hush-hush. Never happens. I don't know what you mean. But look at this nice stuff I got from somewhere. I'm not telling you where. But isn't it lovely and, and, and interesting? Sachiyoku Tower is like the furthest northernmost point of the empire. Uh, and it's you know, it has a nice little lore about why it was created. And it's an interesting location, a very, very isolated place where I could see your party being who really, really screws up badly, like execution <laughs> badly, saying you are going to go be sent to man Sachioko Tower. And then lots of interesting things happen to you because you're out so, so alone. So I did like that. It was, if there's a shining center to the galaxy, this is the place that it's furthest from, I believe is the phrase. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, I think I really like those those little sections. Each of them seem to be sparking off ideas, which I thought was cool. The next section is the Yobanjin section. And they start things off and have in a couple of places in this section a, a very interesting sidebar on imperialism. And playing as the imperialists and as an oppressed people in in games. So this is a complicated um, issue with L5R because when you are playing an Asian game in Europe, uh, especially a Japanese-based Asian game like Legend of the Five Rings, you have two kinds of complications because uh, Asians in the West have at various times, including the Japanese, been a persecuted minority Mm. and continue to suffer different kinds of discrimination to this day. Uh, On the other hand, uh, the Japanese in particular have been uh, very oppressive conquerors. Um, mm-hmm. And then you take this into, uh, of, of other nations in the world, then you take this into your fantasy world, and now you've got people playing samurai, yeah. <laughs> where it is a, a conquering warlike culture, and then there are the people that they, they conquered. 
So uh, how do you deal with those power dynamics? And we always say these are good topics to talk about the t- at your table and think about when you're going to uh, be dealing with it. You know, it's it's just respectful to, if not exclude the topics, unless you really feel saying you can have the topics. You can just discuss what does this mean and what are you what are you talking about and and think about it because you know it's 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 a world. So mm. um, I recommend trying not to force your players into one set of actions or another. Don't force your players to be bastards. Even if yeah. imperialisms are even if imperialism is terrible, don't don't force your players to be bastards if they don't want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's my general recommendation for all of that. Anyway, it's a good discussion. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I did like about this discussion with the Yabanjin, I mean I thought the imperialist sidebar was very, very good. But I, a little trivial thing that I liked was we finally get at least an explanation for what Yobanjin actually means. <laughs> I think actually originally it was meant to be something else, but mm-hmm. more, the, you know, and and like the syllables were wrong. This is like in the AEG times, but essentially it means the the forty thousand, the forty thousand people, which is kind of one of those things. Like we we talk about this, it's a random number that is essentially now associated with the number of people who didn't want to be um, part of Rokugan when the Kami started, you know, putting together what is now Rokugan. So it is it is just this number that is now associated. And so now Yobanjin means specifically those people who weren't part of it, however many there were originally. <laughs> that's the, That's kind of the number that has got attached to it. And so that's now what they get called. So that's... That was cool. Yeah, they had good origins in general. Mm. Makes sense. Um, so we, we get three Yobanjin groups detailed. Um, one of them I actually kind of thought was a bit odd because I'm reading through this. It's a very detailed description of the Hyoketsu tribe. But the problem is the Hyoketsu are the ones who become the Kaito, which means that this is literally you're reading through this thing this very detailed description of people who no longer exist in the game. And I was a little confused by that, how much of the page count was like, literally, these people don't exist anymore. Um, I would obviously, you know, the obvious thing is, hey, there just happens to be a group that is exactly like this. Uh, or or the, the Kaito didn't come from the Hyoketsu, they came from a different group. Uh, very, very much like the Hyoketsu or you're playing a game set in the past. Yes, that was that would be another one. But it seemed an odd choice. It was an odd choice, but I, I, I figured it was a model model tribe. I, I think that would have been better. But they could have they could have done it with a tribe that actually in game still is just it, that's the thing that gets me. But it is nice and detailed, and you can absolutely use those as a model for similar peoples. Um, it's just odd that they chose that group. That specifically does not exist anymore. But other than that, I really like that section. Well, well, so far they've for all of these, they've definitely drawn deeply on the content of the novellas. So as as their inspiration, so you can definitely tell that. So that's not, all the Haikatsu stuff was from Sword in the Spirits, which is uh, the Phoenix Clan novella by Robert Denton. So I think they just 
I think this probably was written by Robert Denton, I guess. I don't know for sure. But uh, I think he was expanding on the stuff he had already created, and that's why they uh, they used that particular one. Um, and if you were to dig into the roots of the Cato or being doing doing something that was deeply twined up in the Cato family, then you could use this stuff as like your lore background and and have things coming out of it that to inspire your adventures. Another of the Yobanjin tribes were the Kokorashi and the Woolen Hooves, uh, which is, which was a broader, pretty peaceful um, Yobanjin group. They have uh, close ties with the unicorn, and how they originated was different than some of the other more conflict associated Yobanjin. So I like this one. I think if you were, if I were going to model new Yobanjin groups, I would model it off the Kogarashi. Or you know, if I was going to say, okay, you meet a Yobanjin on the wilderness, I'd probably tap this one as, as being my source information and just have them scattered because they're nomadic anyway. Um, it works. And the final group were the Seikitsu who live, and this, uh, what I liked about this is I did not when when they kind of said they live here, I kind of went, oh, I'd never considered that. And then as soon as they can mention it, it does make sense. Uh, they live actually in the interior of Rockyan. They live in the spine of the world's mountains, uh, which I thought was a really cool thing. That, you know, in this, because so the, this mountain range, which you can really only get through in large numbers through Baden Pass, there are people who live there. That, and Rockyan as a whole doesn't know about them. And I thought that was rather cool. Um, they congregate around the Tengu's overlook, so they, they've got some links between them and the Tengu, which I thought was cool. I was curious, and so I did a bit of, I say research. The word research would be doing a lot of heavy lifting. Um, <laughs> I did. Uh, but there were some nomadic and semi-nomadic mountain people in historical Japan called uh, Sanka. There's various different names. But there's like, there are mountain people. Um, it kind of has a bit of a derogatory meaning these days. I think it's kind of similar to hillbilly, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, so there is some, there's historical kind of parallels you can make. Probably if I had to complain, and obviously I have to because, um, I'm a nerd and we all, <laughs> we all feel the need. There is a mention of an actual straight up city. Of the sea, Kitsu, and I kind of, I don't feel that, that it's likely that they could be supported in a mountain range and would be hidden. That seems unlikely to me, but, you know, your mileage may vary. Now, it's important to remember this discussion did come up online, like, what's a city? What is a city exactly, yeah. Per the definitions used in the Emerald Empire source book. For five e, uh, a city is ten thousand people in 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 L five R. So it's not the you know quarter of a million or a million people that that you know we might think of as a city. It's it's smaller than that. But the like the logistics of supporting because that's fifty thousand people outside that city supplying it with food, give or take. That's a lot, and you know that's a lot of farming 
and that's difficult to you know they're supposed to be semi-nomadic i mean you know your 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 ones and they're an interesting folk and i don't think saying they only have towns and villages takes anything away from them i think i think the sekits are an interesting addition oh absolutely I'm, i'm just being picky about i don't think they'd be a straight up city that's that's it but other than that uh, I think I think they're an interesting addition, and I think they're really cool. So uh, that kind of you know was the first section of section one. Quite a bit of new lore there, which I appreciated. Now we we'll go to the second section, which is talking about the Dragon Clan. And first thing I noticed about the Dragon Clan is that it's got the ink splot style mons that they've had for the clans uh, in a lot of the L five R material. They had ink splot style mons for the different families of the dragon. I don't remember those in any of the other books. Uh, I could be wrong, but I don't I don't think I saw them. And the thing I like about them is that the dragon mons notoriously are extremely unlike the mons for the other families and the other styles of, of Rokugan. This, the dragon style mons are just very different looking uh in the oldest family mon art and i haven't seen a lot of art of mons since so i really liked new new mons for them they're still the same thing but there's a founding story which is the same as we've had in alt 5r we've talked about it in our dragon episode uh there is no mention of any of the adventures in rokugan style changes that had been potentially made to the dragon about Fulang and Togashi having a different father and the lands outside the empire and all of that. No, none of that in this book. So this is, this is just classic L5R dragon, dragon founding. So yep, that's good. We have a map as is traditional. Um, it's, and also, as is traditional, it's very pretty looking. I do like it. Lots of locations. It's It, it seems almost half label. <laughs> yeah, that format is a little difficult. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. There's, it, it, it would, it, there is an awful lot of these, uh, of, of locations, which is really nice. So maybe yeah, you almost wish you could have that for other other maps. I was jealous. There's uh, There was enough locations to really do a lot of stuff and they were described in the text and and it's just like i wish the other clans who had splat books out before this had that many locations on their map that were actually part of their own lands and mm. um yeah the other clans yeah i do i do find myself because we we had a big discussion recently about fields of victory and courts of stone and the way their maps disagreed very strongly uh, and I don't know if there's anything like that going on here, but um, it's a nice looking map. I haven't broken it down, but since all of this was up in Dragonlands uh, and has nothing on the rest of the map, <laughs> so like uh, Courts of Stone yeah. had the Deer Clan, which wasn't even in Cranelands, and is at the same location as a Lion Link location. And it's like uh that was that's the the conflict there but this these these were all in dragonlands there were many small locations and and they weren't scattered um so you're less likely to have conflict with existing stuff there's just so much new so uh i will eventually get to putting it on the general map but uh, i was i was a little jealous i admit anyway <laughs> 
Yeah. So there you go. That's that. It has a breakdown of the stories for each of the families. Uh, pretty much um, what was familiar before. So we've talked about all this in the Dragon episode, so we won't talk about it again. Uh, the big change here was the change to the Dagashi family, which follows the lore from the Eternal Knot. And from the other 5e short stories that came out in the association with the card game. So this has, instead of Takashi being Takashi Yukuni, the you know visible leader of the Dragon Clan, Tagashi, the Kami Tagashi, is uh, the tattoo master of and uh, has been hiding in the back and and it talks about, Many, many things that were in those those fictions. So this is new for 5e. They aren't from old lore, but it's written up well here. And it uh, I, I, I liked those changes in general to uh, to the, the lore. So uh, uh, and the whole, you know, people coming with, to be Tagashi following their past lives, all of that. I appreciate L5R lore, and I know a lot of the old stuff, but one of the things I really enjoy in in the 5e or and, and get disappointed when I don't see it is where things have changed. So one of my disappointments, I think, for like all the crane stuff, just in 5e in general, is there's nothing new there, you know, at all for it. No, there's been no change, no new locations, nothing, nothing new. And, and it's like this, this. Togashi stuff, this is creative and, and I like it. So I'm glad to see it written up. Yeah. I mean, this might be new for people who have not read The Eternal Knot. Uh, I, I don't know how much of this is in the standard, in, in like in the core book. None of, none of this is in the core book, really. Uh, it's in the some of the later Battles of Cherry Blossom Snow, some of the later fiction you learn some of this stuff. So... So if if you haven't read that, and not everyone has, then this is going to be new stuff. So I think that's nice to have all that in in one place now. So yeah. So obviously we have you know Tagashi, Tagashi family, or the you know the order Tagashi order. You got the Agasha family, Kitsuki and Miramoto. They all get their write ups, and a nice new mon, which is cool, and lots of locations within their lands themselves which I think is something you really want if you're going to be spending time in Dragonlands. You want places to go and interesting reasons to be there. So that's, I think, a really... A re- I really like that section for that. And the next section is on temples, kind of in general, but obviously temples are kind of associated with the Togashi and the dragon. So there's a lot of information about those temples. So you have the world temple, which is an interesting idea. It's more of a philosophy, as in the world itself is your temple, which I thought was that. So there's a lot of fun. This is the philosophy that people you might meet, and indeed your characters might have, that everywhere is a temple. The natural world is your temple, essentially, which was a fun little write-up. And then there's the Wrath of the Kami, which we talked about before as a, as a temple, and and other uh, other strong temples. I, I find temples to be more unique than Kudens, uh in general, or at least the way these were written up were. So 
I, I appreciated that. There is a full write-up with a map of the Mountain Song Temple, kind of like there was a write-up of the Okoto War College in uh, Fields of Victory. Not quite as much as in there, but I, I still appreciated the, that as a solid temple location. There was one quibble I had about this kind of section, and, and that is that how many Togashi-run temples there were, which seemed a bit odd to me because I didn't, I never felt there were that many Togashi. There was enough to be in the High House of Light and a few people wandering around and not entire full temples. But that's maybe just my view of the Togashi, which might not be everybody's view. You could easily swap them out for Brotherhood if you want to. I guess I never thought of them as being purely Togashi temples, because I think of Togashi more as wandering around. Uh, I think these are a lot Agasha temples. Yeah, but but one one or two did seem to be, this is a Togashi-run place, but yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, a quibble, really, from my point of view. Okay. Well, so I think that's the finish of section one, and... uh, I think that we should wrap this up and take a crack at section two for our next episode. How's that sound? Yeah, for our next episode. That sounds good to me. So uh, just to give a call out to Fortune and Strife, our affiliated actual play podcast, uh, that's producing new episodes, maybe even more regularly than we are, uh, as well as our friends at D20 Radio. And we wanted to give a shout out to our Patreons. Uh, our content is funded by our community Discord patron. It supports our editing costs, as well as the website and the Discord that we have. It has uh, special bonus contents like Adventure Seeds, early access to our AP podcasts, and really whatever we can think of for them. Online, you can find us at our website, courtgamespod.com. On Twitter, we are twitter.com slash courtgamespod. And if you want to support us, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash courtgames. Yes. Uh, that's it for this episode, but we'll be back talking about more Rhythm of the Wilds. We're just incredibly verbose. Uh, mm. This is Kikita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I have been Korva. And until we meet again, keep your jade handy.